We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today, I'm very excited because I've been looking forward to bringing back our lovely next guest for a while now, an accomplished lawyer and a highly readable film critic at her own site, moviemom.com, and at rogerebert.com, where she's also an editor. Nell Minow has written over 3,000 movie reviews since the 1990s. Additionally, she's also authored a handful of terrific film books, including 101 Must-See Movie Moments and The Movie Mom's Guide to Family Movies. Nell, it is so great to have you back. I always love chatting and feel like you've become a good friend across these conversations, which is perfect for today's topic which we'll get into in just a moment. But before we do that, I'd love to know how you're doing and how this year has treated you so far. Well, I, you know, this has been a complicated year for everybody, but uh, I've been doing well. Uh, thank you, Turner Classic Movies, for kind of sustaining me through this difficult time. Yes. But I'm, I'm doing very, very well. And I'm excited because I proposed this topic and it's one that I love and that I've wanted to talk about. And of course, I'm always thrilled to be on with you because you have so many interesting things to say about movies. And I do feel that we've become friends over the time that we've been that we spent together. Yeah, it's always so fun. I, I learned so much from you. And I love your stories, too. Like one of my favorites was you talking about going to the Library of Congress and the, the white gloves and then putting on a movie for you. And I just it's always such a delight. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Well, what have you been working on lately? Are there any recent or upcoming pieces at RogerEbert.com or MovieMom.com elsewhere that you would like us to be on the lookout for? Well, thank you. Uh, of course, I've got my fall preview, which will be up next week with uh, the movies that uh, we've got to look forward to. Uh, and I've done some fun interviews lately. I was not a huge fan of the movie Mac and Rita, but okay. I enjoyed talking to the director about it very much. I like her a lot. And, um, you know, I uh, this week I reviewed a movie that kind of blew me away, a documentary 
called Explorer. I had never heard of the subject before, but he's apparently very well known in the UK. Uh, He was named by the Guinness Book of World Records, which I think is a reliable source, as the foremost explorer of our time. Wow. And I just couldn't get over his accomplishments, any one of which would have been extraordinary, but he went around the globe, South Pole to North Pole and around over a three-year period. He climbed Mount Everest at age 65 after open-heart surgery, and he ran seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, just for a few. And I think you'll appreciate this. He he was born a baronet. Um, He's a nobleman. That's not the same as being poor, even though he doesn't have money because he has sponsors like Prince Charles. Uh, but his name is Ranaf Fines, and he is a cousin of the actors that we know, Ray Fines and Joseph Fines. And uh, he and Joseph Fines actually made a TV series together about going down the Amazon. Wow, that is incredible. I can't wait to read that and also see the movie. My goodness. And yeah, I mean, you gotta love the Fines. Uh, Bilga Iberi is going to be coming back to the podcast soon. And he chose Ray Fines as our topic because we had so much fun talking about in Bruges when we did Mm -hmm. Colin Farrell this spring. So Mm -hmm. perfect. Yeah, that is terrific. I'm a huge Ray Fines fan and I'm a huge fan of Bilja as well. Yeah. Yeah. He's wonderful. Well, last time you were on the podcast, which was last autumn around the same time, and come to think of it, this might be your third fall show because I remember yeah. we did one on fall movies. Uh, we last year, though, did a really fun episode on female friendships on film. We took a look at everything from how to marry a millionaire to set it off. And there's so much there with this topic that I love this next idea that you had for today to focus on two actresses roughly 50 years apart who've specialized in playing best friends. We're talking, of course, about Eve Arden in the films Mildred Pierce and Anatomy of a Murder and Judy Greer in 13 Going on 30 and 27 Dresses. We'll go deeper into these women's performances, the roles, and the four films that you chose in just a moment. But before we do that, I'd love to know more about your thoughts on the role of best friend on screen, maybe how it differs with male and female characters and actors, and perhaps how it's evolved or how it hasn't over time. Well, thank you. And yeah, I do very much feel that this is a follow-on to the films we talked about before, which I was very careful last time to pick films that were about the friendship. It was about the relationship and the friends involved were equals in terms of their roles in the movie. But what we're going to talk about today is something we see far more often which is almost every heroine and many heroes in movies have a best friend. And that is a sidekick role. That is not, they're not equal in any way. And so I, I made a list of some of the things that I think that that role brings to a movie. So let me, if I may go down. Oh yeah, I'd love it. Right. So first one is, uh, let me back up for a minute and tell you about an interview I did some time ago with a Disney animator. And I almost jokingly said to him, why does every Disney princess have some animal sidekick that they talk to? And he said, you know, that drives me crazy. I I was determined that I was going to create a character who did not. And then I ran into two problems. One, 
if she doesn't, you know, the princess in the movie is usually isolated in some way, literally in the case of Rapunzel or socially in the case of Cinderella or Snow White, they're they're you know, so they don't really have a person, a friend to talk to. Mm -hmm. And so they're either going to talk to themselves or they're going to have kind of an animal to talk to. And he said, and the other reason is the merchandising people come to us and say, we have to have some cute sidekick that we can that we can create and and in movies for adults you the same thing you have to have somebody for the character to conspire with to confide in to confess to and a classic example there is Rupert Everett in my best friend's wedding yeah because we wouldn't know what was going on if Mm -hmm. Julia Roberts didn't keep picking up the phone and calling him yes that was basically his whole role yeah. That was his whole role. And then, yeah. of course, to come in and be wonderful and gorgeous at, at the, the end. end. Yeah. Kind yeah. Of. <laughs> but so that's number one reason is so we know what's going on. And the you know, if she's not going to talk to herself in the mirror, then she's going to have to talk to somebody. So we need to have the the confidant role. OK, yeah, next on the list. And I see this a lot, particularly in movies, I'm going to say of like the 80s and 90s to make the heroine more interesting. So very often the heroine is a kind of bland character Mm -hmm. uh, in order to make her universally appealing. She's pretty. She -hmm. has a beautiful figure. She looks good in clothes and she's not temperamental. She's Mm -hmm. not snarky. She can't be because she's going to end up happily ever after at the end of the movie. Yeah. Sleepless in Seattle, for example. Yeah, exactly. So you've got to have, right. So you've got to have Rosie O'Donnell there to be the one who says it's not true, but it feels true, you know, to make the kind of the the wisecracks. And what you saw a lot in the eighties and nineties, especially is they would take the best friend, best friend would either be not white or gay or edgy in some way. I'm making air quotes here (laughs) uh, to show that our, our heroine uh, uh, is open-minded yeah, and that's so true. No, surrounds no. herself. And I can think, for example, uh, I'm a fan of the movie uh, Frankie and Johnny. And oh, great film. Yeah. Great film. They made a number of changes in that. In the play, which I've also seen, they make it absolutely clear that the main character, the main female character is very overweight. And in the uh, play, she was originally played by Kathy Bates. Oh, but wow. So she's she's supposed to be not conventionally attractive, but who do we have playing her in the movie? Michelle Pfeiffer, yes. the most beautiful woman yes. on the planet. Okay, <laughs> all right. In the play, she does not have a best friend, but we give her a gay best friend yep. in the movie to show what a uh, an open hearted mm-hmm. with it kind of person she is. So there's yes. that that aspect of the best friend is to show us something about the character of this otherwise bland main character okay yeah i'm thinking of uh kelly lynch and curly sue that they gave a a black friend to um just to try to i think liven her up a little bit because exactly she was pretty pretty bland yes pretty boring yeah it's pretty yeah yeah. okay all right next um and this is this is sort of where i was going is to make the character more sympathetic so it shows that she's she's kind-hearted she's open-minded and you know, the fact that she looks like Michelle Pfeiffer, we could we can't hate her because she's got this lovely best friend and this wonderful relationship with Nathan Lane. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next is to provide contrast. 
And uh, so you have a little bit of a yin and yang thing going there. And very often that's the B story. So I'm thinking of one of my favorite examples of that is Esther Williams in Neptune's Daughter has Betty Garrett as a best friend. And one of my favorite parts of that movie is it introduces the song that won the Oscar, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Mm. And so in one room, Esther Williams is with her boyfriend and he's singing the song in a very seductive way to her. Yeah. And in the other room at the same time, it's the female, Betty Garrett, who is singing the song to Red Skelton. Oh, that's and funny. makes it a comedy. So you've got one serious character and one funny character. And so the contrast uh, is, is important too. You see um, that in When Harry Met Sally too. Yes. A little bit. Yeah. Exactly. Carrie Fisher. Carrie Bruno, Fisher. Kirby. Bruno Kirby. Yep. And Bruno Kirby, exactly. So then you have a you have a B story happening there. Okay. And then of course the classic reason for the best friend is to provide support. Absolutely. Uh, that's what they're there for. Yeah. That is what they're there for. That's what best friends are for in real life. And that's yeah. what they're for in the movies. And then I have another aspect which we've touched on a little bit, but I want to call it out. And that is to say what the main character can't. So True. that's where we get into they're Eve Arden. Gutsy. Yeah. They're more gutsy. Our 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 wonderful heroine that we love so much is much too sweet yeah. to say anything nasty or mean or cutting. Yeah. But yeah. So to prevent her from being just boring, uh, we have a best friend. And that's where you have your Rosie O'Donnell, mm-hmm. you know, kind of best friend. So yeah. yeah. And your and Carrie Fisher. Yeah, or Joan Cusack in Joan Cusack, Girl. Per- yeah, and, perfect and other example. movies. Yes. <laughs> they get to be the colorful yep. one, you know. Coffee, yeah. tea, me. I mean, that's Joan Cusack. <laughs> that's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is that it, Miss McGill? You know? Yes. I love it. <laughs> and to and to rejoice, of course, at that last, that wonderful oh, last shot in the movie to favorite. rejoice when the heroine uh, arrives. So those are the those are the ideas that I've come up with as the the role that the best friend plays. And I want to also say that this goes back a long, long way. If you look at Shakespeare, for example, a classic example of what I call the A story and the B story is, of course, in Much Ado About Nothing. Excellent point. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what we have there. We have the character, who Beatrice, who has got a mouth on her who says what she thinks. He was very independent and complicated. And she could not be the heroine, so to speak, because she is all of those things, but she's got the best, she is the best friend of the heroine. And she uh, has her, her comic romance going on at the same time, the more serious romance is going on. Yeah, you also see it in Jane Austen with the multiple romantic plots and how one right. is kind in of the Pride story. and Prejudice. It's, yes. it's a sister. She has yep. a friend also, the friend who unfortunately has to marry Mr. Collins, but somebody yes. has. <laughs> and but she also she's very very close to her sister, and of course, Sense and Sensibility. It's about two sisters. Yes. So, Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Emma, she has a friend and she has I a mean, friend. She, she's not, she yes. is not a good friend, but no. but that's a very but, but that's a B story in itself, the romance yep. of Harriet Smith. And um and that that is very instructive to to Emma about her her, yeah. her hubris in very. trying to make <laughs> things come out differently. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And do you see um, any big differences when it's uh, a man playing the best friend or a woman? Or do these roles kind of, are they Well, very when similar? I think about, about the, the equivalent of what we're talking about now, let's talk about Brigadoon, Van Johnson playing the best friend of Gene Kelly. that all the time, yeah. <laughs> and he plays exactly the same role in Yours, Mine, and Ours with Henry Fonda. True. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, he's the wisecracking, cynical type. And our hero in both cases is the uh, stalwart guy with integrity and romance in his bones. And yeah, so so we, we have that kind of a role. Obviously, male friendships in movies are portrayed in a different way. But very often you do have that dynamic of the one who who is who kind of says what the main character can't say mm-hmm. because it would make him look small minded or too cynical. So very often you, 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 that's what you get. Yeah. And sometimes they're just far livelier. I was just thinking of uh, along came Polly, for example, yeah. Ben Stiller and you've got Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman is just this yes. larger than life person. Yes. If the whole movie had revolved around him, it would have been too much but Stiller's a little boring without him. Exactly. It's like putting a little salt in the soup. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then sometimes you also have the the reverse, like Tony Randall playing Rock Hudson. Yes. And he was a little dry, but but it worked. It was a nice balance to kind of... He was also a very comic figure, his whininess. I love that. I love it when he says... I've got I've got my lawyer to draw up a contract that is absolutely unbreakable. We confess to everything, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, But yeah, Tony Randall, great example. And and there again, it has to balance. There's always got to be that balance. I would say that in any um, any narrative pairing, we'll talk about movies, but in any narrative pairing where you've got two characters, generally speaking, and this is true in comedy teams like Bing Crosby and Bob Hope or mm-hmm. Abbott Costello, you've got one who's kind of the grown-up, one who is the more serious, uh, and then one who, you know, one is the id and one is the superego, basically. So you've yes. got one who's uncontrollable and the yes. other one who's trying to control. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Yeah, Laurel <laughs> and Hardy. Yeah, Laurel and Hardy. Right. Hardy was not Great on his own, but next to Laurel, he was the grown-up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I don't mean he wasn't a great great actor and great comedian, oh, but no, I mean there he, were he was not good great. at navigating his way through the world. But generally <laughs> speaking, yeah, that is what you've got is this is this tension between the uh, and and that really is something that lives inside of all of us. All of us are in a situation where in our head we're thinking something pretty mean or cynical, but we're grownups. And so we don't say it. And so it's fun to see that play out on screen with with Philip Seymour Hoffman talking about the things that he talks about and Ben Stiller, (laughs) you know, trying to, trying to put some control. Yes, exactly. And it's interesting because you were talking about a story and B story. I was trying to think, have these roles really evolved over time, they seem to kind of still have the same ingredients. But as time went on, we got more movies just about friendships, I feel like. Yes. 
Um, yeah. You know, we had our buddy comedies in the 80s and 90s, but then we also had some more films about female friendships that we focused on last year. Because right, I, I mean, they're that are actually about yeah. that are actually about the friendship. But yeah, Lethal Weapon, another yes. another great example where you've got the grown up and the yes. wild man. Yeah. yeah, Midnight Run a little bit. Midnight <laughs> Run, one of my things. favorite movies of yeah, all time. I know, same Beverly Hills Cop. Like you have yeah, exactly. these sort of. Got yeah. Judge Reinhold and John Ashton is in both because John Ashton is Midnight Run. Martin Brust. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, in order to give listeners a little variety in our introductions and a welcome break, perhaps for me being the one to always lead us into each film or topic lately, I've been inviting some of my very knowledgeable guests to do the honors. So for today, Nell, I'm going to let you start us off on Eve Arden and those movies, and I will tackle Judy Greer later on. All right. Well, I was delighted that you invited me to introduce Eve Arden. It gave me a chance to learn a a few more things about her that I didn't know before. So I'm going to share those with you. Excited. Her birth name, Eunice Mary Quedens. Oh, wow. Okay. She was born in uh, 1908 in Mill Valley, California. Uh, she raised by a single mom, left school in her teens, uh, to try to make it as an actress. She was a Ziegfeld girl on Broadway, which should not be a surprise because she had that wonderful statuesque look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, um, she also was, she, her career extended over 50 years. She was on radio. She was a huge star on radio in the yeah. radio program, Armis Brooks, which later transferred to television. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a number of different television series. I was a big fan of one called The Mothers-in-Law uh, okay. that she was in with Kay Ballard. She was on, so she was on television, radio. She was on everything, movies, everything you could do as a performer. She made her movie debut in 1929, Playing, this will not surprise you, a wisecracking showgirl who becomes the rival to the star. Um, And she was so good at delivering sarcasm and wit with a comic twist without being mean-spirited. That is a talent, yeah. That that really typecast her from that point forward. She was always the spunky, funny girlfriend, generally without a boyfriend of her own. Uh, to the leading lady or the dependable funny girl Friday to the leading man. Mm-hmm. So um, it was when she was a Ziegfeld girl that she took on the name Eve Arden. And there are a number of different theories about where that name came from. But um, the the general the generally accepted idea is that it was two cosmetic bottles, uh, Evening in Paris, perfume and Elizabeth Arden makeup. So, yes. Uh, she her she said her favorite thing was making people laugh. And one reason she has such a distinctive character, this is my speculation, is that she often worked on her lines to make them funnier. And that's why we do feel that she's the same character throughout all of her movies. She had that wonderful, witty, sophisticated, classy delivery. Somebody she played a character who had no illusions, but was never cheap or small minded. Uh, or to use an antique term, she was not ill-bred. Mm-hmm. Um, she said something that is as applicable in 2022 as whenever she said it. She said, there's always been such a need for laughter in the world and never more than today. Oh. Uh, I know I know you're familiar with her role in Stage Door. That was really her yes. big breakthrough where she was the 
sarcastic, witty member of the all-star cast of actresses. She's in there with Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn and a lot of very, very, very prominent actresses. And she through the whole movie, she's holding this big white cat and just sort of mouthing off. And uh, and she's absolutely wonderful. And she so based is. on that role, she was the spunky, sarcastic supporting character in just about every movie she made. Um, so uh, I wanted to mention, we're going to talk about uh, two of her movies, but I want to mention a couple of others that are of interest. One is um, My Reputation, a movie that was a pandemic. Ooh, Bar- Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. Barbara Stanwyck. I saw it I then too. Yeah. I'd never seen it before. It was oh. on, I'm just a huge fan of Barbara Stanwyck and George Brent. And so I watched it and it's a very lovely movie. But in that one, she's really just the classic sympathetic best friend. Yes. Listens. She's very supportive. She's not being such a wise, a wisecracker. You know, mm-hmm. she's just, she's very, very sympathetic in that. Um, she said, I'll tell you one other thing that she said. She said, I've worked with a lot of great glamorous girls in movies in the theater. And I'll admit, I've often thought it would be wonderful to be a femme fatale. But then I'd always come back to thinking that if they only had what I've had, a family, real love, an anchor, they would have been so much happier doing all the hours when the marquees and floodlights are dark. So she had a very philosophical attitude. Yeah. yeah. That's so, wonderful. Wow. That is Eve Arden. Mm-hmm. I know it. she is so good at playing this, this role. And even though she did kind of play the same part throughout her life, I like the two films that you chose today mm-hmm. because I feel like, there's some differences there in her yeah. approach and it kind of shows just her deafness and how she's able to support, but also kind of guide um, the story and the other actors. And I think these are two remarkable films that you chose. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. So where do you want to start? Should we start with Mildred Pierce chronologically? Yes. 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 Well, right. so Mildred Pierce, I think is the, quintessential Eve Arden role. Absolutely. Uh, Oscar nominated. Yeah. So Mildred Pierce, uh, of course, played by Joan Crawford, uh, is basically a woman suffering movie. She's a woman with two children, a single mom with two children, who just by all the grit and determination that only Joan Crawford can bring, uh, created a successful business. Yep. Uh, One of her children sadly dies and she, uh, the other one is, I think you'll agree with me, the worst daughter in the history of movies. Evil. Yes. Just the worst. The worst. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, and the movie is told in flashback. And by the way, if you've seen the movie, I highly recommend the Carol Burnett parody of it because the better you yes, know the movie, with Vicki Lawrence. Yes. Edward and Pierce. the better you know the movie, you will be flabbergasted at the accuracy of the scenes and the lines and the costumes. And it's hilarious. It's wonderful. So, yes. anyway, uh, so it begins on YouTube and share it with everyone. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah. Definitely. So it, it begins. We know that Mildred Pierce is in trouble and that someone's yes. been murdered. And so then we go back and sort of find out the whole story. So Eve Arden 
has stuck with her through bad husbands, bad boyfriends, bad daughters. And she's got one classic line in this movie that everybody quotes when they talk about her, which is um, alligators have the right idea. They eat their young. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, but she says, personally, Vida's convinced me that alligators have the right idea. They eat their young. Yeah. But here's a good example of what I am talking about with her. She has to convey, you know, everybody's in a movie is trying to convey some information to the audience. She needs to convey to the audience uh, and by and the, and to Mildred Pierce that there is an automobile outside, that she has arranged for this automobile to arrive. So it would be very easy for her just to say, the car is here. Mm-hmm. The car you asked for is here. But no, um, she says, uh, she says that long black thing has arrived. You know, she she has to put her own spin on it. And um, when a man is kind of ogling her in the movie. Yeah. She says, leave something on me. I might catch cold. <laughs> I know. Yeah. She's very blunt. She says what you would want to say. But you, most wish, of us, you yeah. wish you could put it that, that way. But moment. she put her own spin on everything. Yeah. And, and she adds a tremendous amount to that movie. Um, we, you know, we might think of Mildred as being kind of a mopey creature. Yeah. But the fact that she has the loyalty and the dedication and the friendship of this very interesting woman the fact that she tolerates her, mm-hmm. the fact that 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 they are maintain this friendship, that tells us that keeps us on Mildred's side in a way that would not exist without that character. Yeah, she really props her up because Mildred seems like such a doormat. Yeah, uh, throughout the movie. I mean, people are always taking advantage of her. She's always trying to do. I mean, you know, it's noble to want to help your kids and do right, but. Uh, Oh my goodness, Vita is the most spoiled uh, bratty girl. Oh my gosh, that's the history of movies. That scene where she gets paid off by the by her husband's oh rich family God. is just the worst. The fake pregnancy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's some sudsy elements to this. I've actually never read the book. I really want to because I I heard it's it's very different. And also the Eve Arden role doesn't really exist right. or it's different. It's a composite of two roles uh, that right. they put together and mm-hmm. built for Eve Arden. But, you know, without her, this movie would be a little too much. It would be way too dour. It does it have those slog. Yeah, it does have those film noir elements of, you know, telling the story in flashback. But what's so cool is this time it's... it's With that light on her face as she's being examined, that's a very film noir iconic thing. I love the cinematography in this. I mean, it's just, it's a classic, it's a masterpiece, but... Yeah, you need that. I also think she's a good uh, yin to the yang of Jack Carson. Yes. Yeah, because he can kind of come in and, and dominate or steal scenes, you know, even though he's playing just kind of a snake-like guy who's always making come-ons and passes at Mildred Pierce. He's one of those guys and he's manipulative and he's scheming and you kind of need someone to be able to go toe to toe with him. And that's exactly Eve Arden. to yeah. say things like, yeah, leave something on me. I might catch cold. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and by the way, I, 
I love on Turner Classic Movie, Summer Under the Stars. And I was very happy that they had a Jack Carson day because I am good. He's so good. And he can do so many different things. He's he's very funny, but he can be, as we see in this movie, uh, a little menacing. And uh, yeah, he's he is great. And and it just her character gives Mildred Pierce a side that we would not otherwise see. And uh, and she moves the story along. She plays an absolutely critical role and she just does it so beautifully. Yeah. And I've I've read some analysis that suggests maybe she's a coded character, that she's gay. She has a lot of opinions about um, men and women dynamics. But I think sometimes, you know, it's just what you want to see in the film. But I think she is just phenomenal and she really sells all of those lines. And I think it helps us see the motives better for Mildred Pierce. You don't understand why she's doing some of the things that she's, except for love for her daughters. But um, as far as with other characters and some of the business decisions, I feel like you really need that. It goes back to that thing you were telling me about the Disney animator, like you Mm -hmm. need that person. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yes. And again, just as, as with the car, she puts her own spin on the language and that that scene that I was just talking about. Jack Carson leaves and she says, laughing boy seems slightly burned at the edges. What's eating him now? You know, a screenwriter might just say he seems upset. Yes. But to put it in those terms, it just puts so much of a spin on it. And I think she's cynical, but not in a depressing way if I could put it that way yeah not in an unlikable way like she's cynical in a way that still is approachable I guess exactly exactly she hasn't given up because after all she's cynical and yet she maintains this friendship through thick and thin yeah and so she's not a missing totally yes and another role that the that the friend plays is the truth teller very often so true. we can hear the truth from somebody who's not the main character because the main character is still figuring it out. So this is her description of Jack Carson. Um, jealous, that doesn't sound like Wally, no profit in it. And there's a boy who loves a dollar. <laughs> yeah, you do need that. Like everyone knows with their own friends in a situation, sometimes you get tunnel vision yeah. Or you can be blinded by um, your attraction to someone or your loyalty to someone or, you know, you're working a terrible job and they're taking advantage of you. But, you know, you're just so focused. You need that outside help and you need an Eve Arden. Yeah. Yeah. We, I think we would all love to have an Eve Arden. Oh, in our my life. goodness. I would. Yes. <laughs> she could help me, like, have the courage to say exactly what I want to say in the moment. Because you mm-hmm. always think of it like 10 minutes later. And, uh, you know, Do you, you know, the French term. It. The French term for that, it's l'esprit d'escalier. It's the thought you have on the stairs on the way down from the room where you should have said it. And I I love that expression, l'esprit d'escalier, the spirit of the staircase. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Wonderful. Should we move on to Anatomy of a Murder? Sure. That's one of my favorite movies. I was going to say, you know, as a lawyer, when I watched it this time, I was like, ooh, this is going to be exciting to talk to Nell about this, especially. Yeah. Even though there is one huge legal mistake, uh, it is based on a real case and was written based on a book written by a a lawyer and judge. And the um, 
judge in the movie played by a real live American hero. Yeah. Uh, and uh, For the McCarthy hearings, right? Exactly. He's the one yeah. who said, have you, have you no shame, Senator awesome. McCarthy. Uh, and it is, of course, you know, we could have an entire podcast about opening credits. Uh, and Saul Bass. Saul Bass opening credits with that fabulous jazz score. Um, it is a it is an absolute classic in every way. Yeah. Incredible performances by everyone: Lee Remick, Ben Gazzara, yes. George Scott. Now I'm going to tell you something that you might not know, though, which is that Eve Arden's real life husband is in the movie. Brooks West, right? Yes, yes. that's right. Her second husband. Yes. yes, he played the local prosecutor who wasn't big time enough, and so they had to bring in George C. Scott. Yeah. That's so funny. Yep, I love that. Arthur O'Connell is so great in the movie. Mm-hmm. And when lawyers talk about movies about lawyers, everybody always mentions this one because it's the only movie that I know of that has the real life lawyer experience of being very excited because you found the precedent. So in the library, that's where the that's where the cases are won is in the library, not in the courtroom. And <laughs> And so that's that is exciting to us is that Arthur O'Connell finds the precedent. But all right, let's talk about Eve Arden. No heroine in this movie. Uh, no, nobody. No. No, it's not a romantic comedy. Mm-mm. Nobody is or a romantic drama, you know, like uh, like Mildred Pierce. Uh, she's kind of the gal Friday. She really and, is. Yeah. yeah. At first, you're like, is she? his girlfriend is she a co-worker or a best friend clearly she's in love with him oh absolutely yeah. she adores him yeah. yeah so it's a little confusing at first when you see it but it's just such a good strong role like they need her yes and a great line from her in this movie if this refrigerator gets any more fish in it it will swim upstream and spawn all by itself I know as, as a Midwesterner, I just loved the whole element of him coming back fishing and all the fish in his refrigerator. This takes place for people listening, or maybe that they forgot in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Yeah, that's right. The UP. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm a Midwesterner myself and I went to summer camp in Michigan. And of course, the most famous thing that she says in the movie is he says, you're fired. And she says, you can't fire me until you pay me. Yeah. That's and so that great. demonstrates for us so powerfully her loyalty to him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, and she's, she's clearly in love with him. I mean, we're all a little in love with him too, because I mean, yeah, he's, yeah. It's you know. Jimmy Stewart and he's, you know, he's striving, he's crusading and also, it's it's a good foil with the rest of the people. It makes him look even more heroic. Or he's, you know, you've got uh, the the older man that he works with who's got a drinking issue, and then you know, contrasted with George C. Scott, who's slick and you know says everything in a cynical manner. How good is George C. Scott in this? And you need that uh, to contrast uh, Jimmy Stewart. Absolutely. Every performance is wonderful. I want to go back to Lee Remick because Lee Remick is so good. Fabulous. (laughs) She's another one of my absolute favorites. She's so good in it. But, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart plays a lawyer who has lost his job. He's lost his direction. He's got to figure out a new 
way for him to operate. Mm -hmm. He had been an elected official. He had been the prosecutor, the DA. And uh, now he's got to try to figure out law practice where you have to bring in clients. And so he's a little bit of a loss. But the fact that he has the loyalty of somebody as clearly smart and beautiful as Eve Arden makes us feel um, in the same way that that loyal that Arthur O'Connell, we trust him because he he, because he's understanding about Arthur O'Connell. He's honest with him, but he gives him a chance. And that that trio is such a heart of this movie. It is. They're like a family and it makes us invested in uh, Jimmy Stewart. It makes him suddenly worthwhile because at first, you know, he's very aimless, meandering. When I was watching this um, just recently for this podcast, I was thinking about John Grisham probably loved this movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, he's a lawyer, but watching it and thinking about all the characters who are kind of like you know, outsiders, or they're sort of the rebels, or they've been fired by their firms, or they left on their own accord. Like, uh, I was thinking of the Deck Shiflet character in The Rainmaker, and that whole thing with Danny DeVito. And I was like, this is essentially anatomy of a murder. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, You know, the first time I saw anatomy of a murder was long before I went to law school. I am from a family of lawyers. So I've been surrounded by that my whole life, but I was a long way from going myself. And so I learned a couple of very important things about litigation from the movie that are true. And one is that I made such an impression on me when I was very young, when the judge says the jury will disregard this. And somebody says to Jimmy Stewart, how does that happen? He says, they can't, they, they you know, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And then also the, the word panties. Yes. Uh, yes. Where Joseph Welch, who is so good in the role, he says, mm-hmm. this is a very important item. We're going to be talking about it. I don't want any snickering in the courtroom. The way that he managed the, the, uh, the, the, the spectators in the courtroom mm-hmm. really taught me a lot about how litigation works. And uh, so, the you know, it's it's very it's just such a good movie. And it she's is. such an important part of it. Did it, if you saw it before law school, were you young when you saw it? Yes, I was very young. I was very young. I was probably about 14. Uh, so was it kind of shocking to see or, and hear the language that they use? Because this movie did. Well, I this mean, topic was shocking because though yes. in those days, that was before the introduction of the rating system. Yes. Uh, it was very, very rare that you would have a subject like rape. Mm-hmm. discussed in a movie. So yeah, that was that was definitely a very provocative, very yeah. adult to my to my mind. Yeah. 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 And the words that they're using clinical terms about sex and sexuality that are spoken. I read that the Chicago mayor daily um got the movie like censored or it wasn't allowed and then they, <laughs> they overturned it. Uh-huh. It was- yeah, which I yes, because they talk nice. about the evidence of yes. rape and all yeah. of that. Yeah, they need but, to. Yeah, yeah, and okay, but just as a lawyer, I'm going to say that if you're making the case of uh, irresistible impulse, which is which is a kind of a uh, insanity defense. Yeah. Um, whether 
uh, it actually happened or not, the case should not turn on that, but okay, fine. That's yeah. true. That's yeah. true. Is that what you were going to, you said there's yeah. one legal thing yeah. that was that's not you. That's not really, that's not really true, but okay, fine. That's, you know, it, it certainly makes for a much more dramatic Movement. Yeah, yeah, it kind mm-hmm. of all hinges they on have the, the Mary panties. Man yes, come yeah. in and take the stand, and yeah, make it very dramatic that way. Yeah. I also read a thing. Yeah, some lawyers don't like; they think like he's uh, witness coaching or kind of leading him yeah. into being. Oh, but that happens all the time. Yeah, exactly. Time. Yeah. You know, I mean, for example, you think about how at first he has Lee Remick dress in a very dowdy way. Yeah. And then at a very crucial point of the trial, he says, let's let everybody see how gorgeous you are. Yeah. And of course, we think about rape very differently. Oh, gosh. Today yes. About whether she was being provocative or, you know, I mean, that's we we would not allow that kind of testimony. No, um, no. But yeah, it's definitely dated in that fashion. For but sure. that's OK. You know, this is my view. Uh, I, I recommended a movie, uh, a Marx Brothers movie recently. Yeah. And um. Somebody said the the there's that movie's got racist stuff in it. I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, yeah. it it came All out in the, the 1930s. Yes. So you're just gonna have to you can't cancel everything in the world. You just 100%. have to say when you yeah. show it to people, this is what we're dealing with. Yes, it and, was made in the time and they were and, making and, it for and the it's right good reasons. to know. Yeah, it's good to know how casual the racism, yes. the sexism, the the you know, what a what a rape survivor would go through and yeah. testimony um in those days so that we understand where we are now and and where we would yes. like to be yeah, yeah exactly the the way it just seemed open and accepted back then like it's important like they made the film um i think in this case i mean the marx brothers yeah but in this case they were you know really striving you had people who were very progressive behind the scenes definitely also, you had the Duke Ellington score and I read it was something like an, in an American movie, one of the first times we had an African-American score um, for something on this um, level of, I don't know, high profile film. But yeah. But yeah. And the score is indispensable for the movie. It's just, it it just, it provides that melancholy feeling that shows us really where Jimmy Stewart is in his emotions right at the beginning. No, it's great. It's yeah. Yes. Anyone who's listening who hasn't seen it, sorry if we spoiled some stuff for you, but watch it. You're fine. It's it's a masterpiece for sure. Well, this brings us to our next best friend. We have mm-hmm. Judy Greer, uh, our next actress. She is a contemporary character actress who's worked steadily since the late 90s mostly playing wives, mothers, girlfriends, and especially iconically best friends, which is the role that she's perhaps best known for on screen in films like the now beloved, almost cult favorite, even though it was a hit when it was released, 13 Going on 30, plus movies like The Wedding Planner with Jennifer Lopez, 27 Dresses, which we're going to get into today, Love Happens with Jennifer Aniston, a lot of Jennifer she co-stars with, and uh, a lot more. Also, she is, uh, in an interview, she stated she was perhaps best known for her work on the small screen in Arrested Development, which she was absolutely hilarious in. She's a scene stealer, and over the years, she has gotten the chance to um, expand upon her range. She's played drama in movies like Jeff Who Lives at Home. She was very good. Just um, minor 
roles that you wouldn't maybe associate with Judy Greer if you know these more iconic uh, films. But she's remarkable. She's also done some franchise films, like she's in the new Jurassic World movies, the Ant-Man films. And she also directed her first film, which was unfortunately not a great picture. Uh, Let me see. It was a happening of monumental proportions which had a really great cast, just a knockout cast, a lot of people in little cameo bits, but it is not such a good picture. But I would love to see her direct something else because I think she has a really good comic sensibility and also seems to be able to tap in on human emotions and human frailty in a good way. I think you have to be really talented um, to be funny. You have to know drama. And I think, you know, you see that a little bit here. But today we're going to focus on her turns in two numerical romantic comedies, 13 (laughs) going on 30, directed by Gary Winnick, written by Kathy Yespa and Josh Goldsmith from 2004 and 27 Dresses from director Ann Fletcher and screenwriter Eileen Brosh McKenna which was released four years later in 2008. In 13 Going on 30, Greer plays the frenemy of Jennifer Garner's protagonist who undergoes a big like journey where she moves from adolescence to adulthood after wishing for it at the start of the sweet, genuinely funny film. And although she starts as an antagonist, she becomes a friend of sorts of the Garner character, then morphs back into a rival. But in 27 Dresses, she plays the worldly wild bestie and co-worker of the nice girl slash always a bridesmaid, never a bride, Catherine Heigl. Uh, well, let's dive in and talk about these movies and Greer's roles. We could start with 13 going on 30. Well, you've identified the reason I wanted to use this as one of our topics today. And that is it's a rare best friend who turns out to be the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't happen all the time. No. Yeah. And it really underscores the points that you've just made about Judy Greer and about her range and about her ability, because uh, not many people could pull that off. Now, like Eve Arden, she really is, I think, the successor to Eve Arden. And uh, and like Eve Arden, she has got a fabulous ability to be a little sarcastic, a little sardonic, a little sophisticated, witty, um, and still be appealing. Now, in 13 Going on 30, as you said, when they are younger, she's not playing the character as a a, uh, middle schooler, but when they're younger, you know how things are in middle school. It's everything is miserable. So then when they get older, uh, Jennifer Garner's character is I think at first a little surprised to find out that they're besties and they're working together at this mm-hmm. glamorous magazine, everybody's favorite job uh, for a romantic comedy heroine is yeah. working in a magazine. And, um, but she turns out to be an underminer and a theft of mm-hmm. good ideas uh, and a yes. competitor. Yeah. And so I think that's a very that's a very interesting kind of best friend role because um, uh, it's it's not what we normally see. She doesn't have that loyalty and she she serves a different purpose in the story. 
yeah. she's, she teaches the main character a different lesson than we normally she see. really does she's yeah. kind of a, a mirror and a really interesting yes. one because you find out as the film goes on that um this character played by garner jenna rink who you think is just you know sweet and guileless because it's jennifer garner is actually kind of scheming on the side like she is contacting the rival magazine and giving them the ideas and what happens is the Greer character kind of like undercuts and well I'm going to steal your stealing and she and, does like uh, a jujitsu yes. on her yeah. yes yes yeah. three-dimensional chess so neither one of them has turned out to be a nice person basically no. And in order to, you know, teach our heroine a lesson about loyalty and, you know, ethics, you need that. And I think that's really interesting. It also makes her, while evil, gives her a different take on being evil because it shows us a side of her heroine we weren't expecting. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. you put that perfectly. And and I think, as I said, that's a challenge for an actress. And I think she yeah. handles it very, very well. Even if you look at it again, you will see from the beginning that their relationship is not very deep. No, it's very surface level. There's a little bit of rivalry or she's barely humoring her at yeah. times. Yeah. Like when, you know, she's got an impatience. Yes, very impatient at first. Like you're being a little paranoid here or, you know, like her friend is clearly troubled when she picks her up at the beginning. And it's it's funny because it's Judy Greer. But then you also just see it later. Um, I think also she serves a great purpose in some of the uh, relationship moments of the film yeah. where you you find out that Garner's character is dating this hockey player and, you know, she doesn't know how to have a grown up uh, romantic relationship or where they're in the bar and Greer is encouraging her to go talk to the hottie who's like looking at her and she goes over and talks to like a middle school boy yeah. instead of the man. Yes. It's so great. I know. It's hilarious. I want to point out also <clears throat> that it's a rare chance for us to see the real Andy Serkis, uh, who is such a gifted motion oh capture gosh. actor. We yes. normally see him behind a lot of CGI but we get to see him dancing to Thriller in this movie. It's so good. Yeah, I loved his role. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really fun film. I, I loved it the first time I saw it. I remember I went, I think it was during finals or midterms or something in college at the time. And, you know, I needed a stress reliever. And so I just went to the movies and that happened to be the next thing playing. And just such a delight. I actually watch it way more than big. I don't know. Yes. It's just me. Yeah. 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 It, it, it is. It is a lot of fun. Yes. And then moving on to 27 dresses, uh, she is a definite friend in this one and she has her friends back, but she's also very spicy, salty. She's kind of got that eighties and nineties element to her. This feels sort of like an eighties or nineties film. It does. And yet it is the classic best friend role it because is. Catherine Heigl, very, very pretty, yep. beautiful, gorgeous figure, does everything the right way, yep. you know, uh, is the perfect employee. Of course, she's got the crush on the boss, but okay. Yep. And, uh, but, you know, she, in fact, her problem is she does too much for everybody. Yes. As we see in what I think is one of the best parts of the movie is that first scene where she is 
a bridesmaid and two different weddings at the same time. Oh, that's hilarious. Race back and forth between them going into the sorry. And, you know, but she, when she's a bridesmaid, she does everything for the, you know, she keeps all of the schedules. She, you know, and, and uh, she loves, she loves doing it. And she, but she's, she gives so much of herself. She doesn't really keep anything back. And so therefore she is balanced by somebody who's very much her own person who loves Catherine Eigel because why wouldn't you? She's a wonderful friend. She's a lovely person. Uh, She doesn't think enough of herself. She defers too much to her sister. Um, And so she needs somebody kind of in her corner. And Judy Greer is just perfect in that, in that role. And yet she brings a little spice to the movie because Catherine Heigl would otherwise be very boring. She does. And she also has the element that we saw a lot starting in the 80s. I mean, we just talked about it earlier with Joan Cusack, Coffee Tea, me. She's the more promiscuous one or uh, the sexier one. Exactly. Again, that's the id. The id opposite the superego. She's the one who just goes with her instincts where what we have on the other hand is the very buttoned up, follow the rules, Catherine Heigl. Yeah. Yeah. She's a little bit of a drinker. She's a little slutty. Yeah. You can say that. Yeah. She's yeah. (laughs) She's like the the female version of the Philip Seymour Hoffman character we were talking about (laughs) a little bit before. Yes. Yeah. Not quite as disgusting, but yes. No, not at all. No, but uh, (laughs) definitely a player and also just makes the Heigl character maybe a little bit more interesting. Um, One of the scenes I really liked with her is after Heigl, um, just out of frustration as the film goes on, um, she's been madly in love with Edward Burns, her boss. And as the movie goes on, her sister, who's a publicist, uh, comes to town and the two of them hit it off and they become engaged. I mean, it's kind of like a nightmare. You just feel horrible. But she finally has enough and she does this really out of character, horrifically mean thing where she puts together a slideshow and just unveils at their engagement party or their nuptial dinner i think it is horrifying horrible it's a terrible thing to do yes but what i love is the first person who gets up who is just concerned and wants to go and kind of smooth it over and figure it out is the judy greer character and i thought that was really important because up until then she maybe didn't have as much to do as um, she did in 13 going on 30. I also rewatched uh, the wedding planner, which I, I think is a really cute movie. I rewatched that this week as well with my mom who loves that film. And um, you know, she's really good in that as well. She's lending support. And that's what we see in that moment with Heigl is she doesn't condone her. She kind of, you know, gives her a, uh, you know, a talk like, well, do you feel better? No. Yeah. Right. Um, But she's there to kind of smooth things over in the moment. Like, okay, okay, let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's loyal and she has her back. And that's, again, that's very aspirational. I mean, we think about movies, the aspirational part of movies as being the falling in love happily ever after ending with a wedding, but the friendship part is aspirational too. And that's what we're all looking for is somebody who, you know, who is that ride or die, Mm -hmm. you know, person who will tell you the truth, but who will be there for you no matter what. And I think that that's important in our lives. And it's, and, and it's one of the things that we go to movies to see. 
Yeah, hundred percent. What do you think the current trends are for screen best friends? Do you think they've changed in the 10, 15 years since these movies or what would you like to see in the future? You think? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, when I think about friends in the movies now, I think about, you know, like stranger things where you've got these groups of friends and yeah. uh, who are, who are really together. I think we're always going to have the best friend role for the reasons that I said, we're Absolutely. always going to have the person that the main character confides in the person who tells the truth, the person who is there to, to pick them up and, and, you know, throw water on their face and get them back in there. Uh, and uh, I hope, I can only hope that another Eve Arden or Judy Greer, who does that role so well, uh, will appear. Yes. Oh, I so agree. Well, I know these were the films we decided to highlight for a conversation today. But before we sign off, mm -hmm. are there any other performers or movies under this umbrella of Screen Best Friend? I know we mentioned quite a few, but any others you'd like to recommend? Well, you know, going back to the classic old movies, you know, you have sort of Joan Blondell as, as oh, a best friend. She was, yes. She's a very good one. Um, and sometimes, you know, you have older women as best friends, yeah. like uh, um, Helen Broderick in the uh, in uh, Shall We Dance? Yep. And the mother of Broderick Crawford. And um Jessica and Tandy. Think, you know, I, I like I like that kind of role as well. Yeah, I was just thinking when you said that Jessica Tandy and Fried Green Tomatoes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's that is a absolutely, and that's a movie about friendship. Yeah, and love. Yeah. Yes, so many. Mm -hmm. And then as far as any male uh, friendship movies that you well, know, I mean, Midnight Run, Top Gun. Yeah. You know, you've got Goose. Top you Gun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 That's the ultimate. And there's the sequel. So yeah. that's right. And, and Goose's, Goose's son. But yeah, most, you know, the, as I said, in, in the male, male best friend category, it's not so much about confiding in them, but you're still got that yin yang thing going with one of them being much more outspoken in, in Top Gun. Of course, you had Maverick, who is Maverick, and you had Goose, who is a dad, a loving father, and a mm -hmm. loving husband, and uh, and who says, "Don't do that to me again. That was not right." So, yeah, yeah. I thought of another one, the movie Down with Love, which is kind of a parody of the. I love film. Down with Love. Sarah Paulson. So I love Down yeah, with Love. David Hyde Pierce and David Hyde Pierce in the Tony Randall. Yeah, in the Tony Randall role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think. I, yeah, that's another that's, one people should check terrific. out. A lot of these movies that we mentioned, there's so many uh, great best friends and there's such a good dynamic role. I want to thank you so much for such a creative idea and wonderful discussion. I always learn so much and love talking to you now. Thank you. I love talking to you too. We'll do it again soon. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. 
Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.